This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. We think of children being read sweet bedtime stories like Goodnight Moon or Pat the Bunny or Cherished Mother Goose poems, Uh, but not Rich Cohn's dad. No, Herb Cohn was telling rich stories of gangsters and gamblers in old New York. And so began a fascination that first gave rise to Rich's book, Tough Jews, about the Jewish gangsters of 1930s Brooklyn, and now gives us a rollicking, riveting tale of another version of a gangster, a pirate. A pirate by the name of Albert Hicks, who in the 1800s New York defined what the underworld, the gangsters of New York City would be. Rich Cohn, co-creator with Mick Jagger of the HBO series Vinyl, contributing editor of Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone, the author of over a dozen books that all exhibit his fascination with music, sports, and yes, gangsters, joins us today to talk about his latest book, The Last Pirate of New York, A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and the Birth of a Gangster Nation. Rich, welcome to Just the Right Book. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, So I don't, you know, we hear about pirates a lot, you know, sort of like in Peter Pan or, but we think of Captain Kidd. Am I the only one who never heard of Albert Hicks? How'd you discover this guy? When I was do when I was researching Tough Jews, and you go back and read, I'm always interested in how things start. You know, mm. like I once saw a guy that was kind of a mobbed up guy pull a big roll of singles out of his uh, front pocket and count off the money. And I was like, who did that first? You know, and I think it was Arnold <laughs> Rothstein who sort of started the mob in New York, who was a guy who fixed supposedly the 1919 World Series. So as I researched Tough Jews, I was interested in who was the first gangster. And the sort of iconic text of New York gangs is Gangs of New York by Herbert Asbury. Right. Herbert Asbury talks about this guy, Albert Hicks, who at the time of his crimes was a national story, hugely famous. His trial was like the trial of the century in New York, Um, partly because what happened was so scary, which is the way, and I've been obsessed with the story ever since then, almost as like a movie, how it begins, which is one morning people wake up and there's just a boat, a ship ghosting around New York Harbor with nobody on it. A big ship. A big oyster sloop, which is terrifying. And the police go out, the Harbor Patrol, and there's no one on the ship, but there's blood everywhere. And there's no evidence of any people except this blood. And then they notice by the railing, there's four severed fingers and a thumb. Mm. And it was this guy who was using a fake name. They didn't find his real name until later, named Albert Hicks, who was a pirate. He was from Connecticut, and he went off to sea, went to prison when he was very young, when he was a kid, got turned sort of into a killer in prison, kept escaping. As soon as he got out of prison the last time, he went off to sea on a whaling ship. And he would just, his specialty was going on a ship and basically when things got bad, things got dull, no whales were being taken, he would stir the other crew to mutiny, take over the ship, kill the crew, take the money and take off. And he'd done it, he said, hundreds of times before he finally messed up because he thought he'd sunk that ship and he didn't. And it was found full of evidence. 
So this goes back, you know, this is early. This Albert Hicks lived between 1820 and 1860. How'd you do the research on all this stuff? Well, first of all, yeah, you're right. To me, he was like the first, last pirate, first gangster. He's like the creature that slithers out of the sea and <laughs> moves on to land. He is the pirate who comes onto the ground and becomes the first gangster. And, and excuse me, even in the trial, wasn't there an issue about jurisdiction, whether he was a pirate or a criminal on land? Right. Well, to- the, the definition of piracy was simply anybody that commits crimes on the sea and basically outside anybody's jurisdiction. Still, And... And uh, the, the the sentence for that was capital punishment, the traditional sentence for pirates, hung within sight of the sea. And um, they couldn't charge him for murder in New York because they couldn't find any bodies. Mm. And there was, n- there was no other kind of forensic evidence, 1860, to tie him to. So they figured if they tried him for robbery, which is what they had him on for sure, he'd get like 10 or 20 years in jail. That's it. So they decided to try him for piracy and his lawyer argued, but it was in New York Harbor. He was in the jurisdiction of New York. And the judge sort of said, yeah, I kind of agree, but I don't care. I'm trying as a pirate anyway, because everybody wanted this guy to die, basically. Where does the word pirate come from? I don't even know. I mean, it's and probably a word goes back to the Middle Ages, yeah. basically. And there's different meanings for pirates. And you're thinking of like traditional Bluebeard, yeah. you know, Treasure Island. And this guy was that. He was, like I said, sort of the missing link. Um, and he like, to me, he's like Bluebeard turns into John Gotti. That's mm, Albert Hicks. Yeah. And as far as the research goes, he was in Albert, he was in the Herbert Asbury book. And then he's written about, cause he's this foundational figure in the New York underworld. He turns up in the Luke, uh, Sant book, uh, underworld. I yep. think that's the name of that book. And he turns up in a bunch of other books, but then the way you go back and research him is first of all, there was a, t- it was a huge newspaper story. So you go back and get all the articles written at the time. And there was a lot of papers in New York. There were like 50 newspapers in New York. And you can get articles. Five O. Yeah. And they all had two editions, a morning edition and an afternoon edition, sometimes a late edition. This was a front page story for several months. And then he went to court and there's a court transcript. And then amazingly, shortly before he died, he gave a confession. Right. I'm going to come back to that, yeah. too. So you put all that together, plus research you can do about New York at the time and the city at the time and different characters at the time. And because he intersected with a lot of famous people, you know, like P.T. Barnum and Isaiah Rinders. And and you, you kind of weave a rope together and you get a story. So, Rich, one of the things that was particularly appealing to me as someone born on the Lower East Side in New York is describe for us what the New York of the of eighteen sixty. We're on the cusp of the Civil War. New York is, you know, the grid's laid out. But what's what's New what's New York City like, especially downtown, where all of this was going on? Well, the neighborhoods downtown had been the fanciest neighborhoods. They uh, were the original neighborhoods, right? Like Cherry Street had been like George Washington had a house there, and um. And it was a very fancy street with huge estates. And what happened is, is huge immigration began in the United States, mostly German and Irish. And those people had, those neighborhoods had become slums. And the, they, the, the famous one is the Five Points, which is sort of the most famous slum in American history. And the wealthy people moved out. And they moved basically to the suburbs, which was anything above 14th Street was basically the suburbs. Right. And which was woody and... Yeah, it was the woods. 
It, and there were there were the grids the grid was laid out. It had just been laid out in the early 1800s, but most of the grid was aspirational. There were just markers. There was nothing actually there. Central Park had just opened, so that mm. was there. And um, uh, the 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 key thing that happened is in the early city there had been a this very beautiful main like lake in the middle of Lower Manhattan called the Collect, which is a Dutch word for lake. It's where all the city's drinking water came from. And there were there were factories and tanneries around this lake, and the lake became polluted. Befouled, with the factories. With and... the tanneries dumping waste into it, and you couldn't get water from there after a while. So there was a big problem with this lake, so they decided to drain it. And if I got this right, Canal Street was a canal to drain the lake. Wow. And they drained it, and there was a huge hill next to the lake. And they basically took that hill and they used it to fill in the lake. And then when the lake was like landfill, like a lot of lower Manhattan, they crossed it with streets, but the landfill wasn't done properly. So all these buildings had been built uh, on top of it, on top of it. And they started to sag and they became. So what streets would these, what streets would these well, it's, be it's now? It's exactly where the federal courthouse is. Right in front of the federal courthouse, there's a park called Hogan Park. It's like down by Center Street. Yeah. Named for Frank Hogan, who was. Uh, district attorney in Manhattan who put all the Jewish gangsters away. Right. And that was basically that area after those factories, those people left, it became the slums because no one wanted to live there. And they had, and that was the five points because five streets came together making this kind of star in the middle of it. And they had a little square in the middle called Paradise Square. And it was so bad that every reform program they had there failed. There were so many murders there, they didn't even count them. The police were afraid to even go in there. And so ultimately, they just bulldozed the whole, whole thing and built the park in front of the courthouse and built the jail right next to it. And that's the mechanism of, de- of justice downtown. It's still a relic of what had been the five points. In the period where I'm talking about, there were these gangs in the five points, but they were like big tribal gangs, like the mm. Dead Rabbits and the True Blue Americans. And it was all people born in America of English stock versus immigrants from Ireland. It was really tribal, but there was still, it was still a maritime city where shipping was the most important industry. And there were, they did a study, there were 450 people they classified as pirates living in Manhattan in 1860. Which is a stunning number. Yeah. So now let's go back to the crime. Okay. So we've got this ghost ship and uh, we've got a, it's big news. No one can figure it out. It's sitting there looming on downtown. And what do they figure out happened? Well, they, the detectives were new. So it was like a good example of like, can we, because the way it had been, there was, think about it. There was no fingerprinting. Yeah. I mean, let alone. Like there was no such thing as forensics. There was nothing. Right. So unless you'd actually been seen committing a crime. As soon as you got away, you couldn't be caught. There was basically no way to catch you. So, so Rich, let me ask you a question about that, because you mentioned in the book when you're talking about the investigation, which to me was fascinating in, 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 in this case of Albert Hicks, but you said only 50% of the crimes were solved because the notion of investigation and detectiveness didn't quite exist. How did 50% that did get solved get solved? Eyewitnesses, people railroaded. I mean, some of those crimes that were solved, they probably got the wrong people. Right. You know, people didn't get away. People, all different. But if if you had a determined criminal like Albert Hicks was, who was practiced in getting away, it was it was. That's why the one of the amazing things is he was so. He appears to us to be so incautious 
yeah. you know, after his crime. And that's because there was he knew there was no way to catch him. You know, but he made some mistakes, mm. which is the four fingers and the thumb. Right. He had an original plan, which was he was going to kill the entire crew of the ship out beyond the Narrows, which is the area between Brooklyn and Staten Island, which is like a bottleneck. And then it opens up into the lower bay and then the sea. So he waited till the ship was just beyond the Narrows. He killed the crew. He threw them overboard. And then he was going to sail the ship by himself, which he was able to do, up back through New York Harbor upper and into the Hudson River, which is now, which was then called the North, North River, River. And go about as far as 14th Street. And then take the dinghy ashore and go home. He lived on Cedar Street with his wife and his child. And as, a baby. A baby. Yeah. And as he was preparing to do that, another ship crashed into him. Uh, disabling his ship that he couldn't sail it anymore. It broke off the front of the ship, b- brought the sail down. So then he was panicked because once that happened and the he knew that the other ship would report him to the police, which was the Harbor Patrol. And so then he very quickly went to plan B, which was he just went ripping through the ship, getting everything he could as far as money, valuables. He grabbed everything off of the the, the dead people before he threw them overboard, which was a mistake because there was evidence. That was evidence. Yep. And then he... um. He attempted to wash the ship, to clean it to some extent, and then he poked holes in it. With the hope of sinking it. With the hope of sinking it. And then he got in the dinghy, which is a lifeboat, and what they used to come and go. And he went to Staten Island, which was like a two-mile rowing, I think. Right. He gets onto Staten Island. He pulls the ship up into the weeds, and he heads off. And then walks to the ferry. He walks to the ferry. He just misses the ferry. He's got this huge sack full of money. He's a terrifying guy, you know? I mean, He's a big, handsome guy, He's a right? big, handsome guy, but he's holding this giant sack. He's just killed uh, a bunch of people. And, um, and he goes into a tavern while he's waiting for the ferry and just starts drinking whiskey. Right after the murders, he drank a bunch of beer on the ship that was on the ship. And then he drinks a bunch of whiskey and he orders eggs and oysters. <laughs> he's eating eggs and oysters and he's buying drinks and for everybody. And he's buying for everybody, yeah. right? And then he gets onto the Staten Island Ferry and he's now very tired. Right, it's now and drunk, drunk and tired, but he can't count the money because the money was of all different denominations because there was no real uniform currency then. So there's some bills from here, there's some bills from there, there's some bank bills, you know. And he gets finds a guy who's sweeping the cabin, asks him to come help him count the money. Who's an Irish immigrant who's only been in the country for two years, and so he leaves this kind of trail. But that wouldn't have gotten him. The thing that got him was one of the things that he took off the sailors. One of the key things was he took a daguerreotype, a little photo. I always wondered how to say that word. Yeah. <laughs> Named after a guy who invented the process, Daguerre, a French guy. He took his the daguerreotype of a woman. I don't. I just think he was grabbing everything he could in his yeah. panic. And they found it on him later, and that was the fiancé of one of the people he killed, and that was a key piece of very dramatic evidence in court when she came and she had the matching daguerreotype of him with his hair, in a lock of his hair in the back. And, of course, now they would take DNA of the hair and say, yes, it's him. But then they literally had people look at the <laughs> hair and look at his his hair, you know, because they found hair on the deck of the ship. Well, And it, they said, yeah, that's the same hair. Well, Rich, when I read that part, <laughs> so I, I just want to make sure our listeners are really, really grasping this. That, And we're jumping around a little. We'll come back and make it consecutive. But literally at the trial, they bring out a lock of the deceased 
shipmate's hair. And his girlfriend or wife has another lock, and they actually pass these two sets of hairs around to the jurors saying, see, these are alike. Right. And that that was it. (laughs) The main thing is they wanted... They, they, when they when they searched the ship, they found hair in blood on the deck of the ship. Right. So they took that as evidence. And then she had this daguerreotype, and she used to cut his hair every month. And it was in her in version the, of the picture. Right. So she was the key because she was thought she's got to be an expert on this person's hair. She said, I know his hair better than he knew himself because I cut it all the time. So they had her say, is this his hair? Giving him the hair, giving him the hair, her the hair from the ship. And then she had the lock from the daguerreotype. (laughs) Think about how ridiculous that is. It's ridiculous, but it's the best that they had. And it was very emotional. So when she, if you go, the court was a huge courtroom trial and it was packed. I mean, they had people lining up in the street trying to hear what was going on. And people were weeping when she testified. Mm. Rich, one of the things that almost, I, I could see the film was the detective on the case was a man by the name of Detective Nevins. And they start to try to figure out where Albert Hicks went after he left New York, which they knew he had because the detective ultimately ended up finding the poor wife and the baby. So the detective... And a newspaper man, right? A, right? a guy from the New York Post or Times? No, the New York Times, when the New York Times was still, it was very new. It was less than 10 years old. So these two, like the Keystone Cops, get on the train in New York and start exploring Norwich, Providence, right. um, and, and then Falls River, not Falls River, uh yeah, that's later yeah, they go to later. Yeah, yeah. But talk about what these two guys, like the steps they took to try to figure out how to find Hicks. Well, they literally had to follow I mean, his... it was kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, he left a trail and they got lucky, which you probably have to do. Yeah, so. probably big in the luck, right? Right. Well, the first thing they did is they sent, they knew the dinghy was gone. Right. So when they got the ship, they knew the dinghy was gone. So Harbor Patrol was just this new force in New York that was basically guys like in rowboats, police and slickers looking because there was a serious problem with river pirates. Those were called, those are people that just did crimes on the rivers. So they weren't pirates? They were river pirates. They operated it. So there was like, and they were famous. They were like, you know, gangs called the Swamp Angels. They were river pirates and they would come out of the sewers and they would attack ships and attack people. So one of the key suspects is maybe this was the river pirates. It looks like it could be the river pirates, but it's kind of far out to see for the river pirates. Like the river pirates usually don't operate beyond the narrows. Mm -hmm. So, but that was definitely something they were looking at and they go look for the dinghy and they send the, the, uh, the patrol to look for the dinghy and they find it on Staten Island. And then, so the, the, the shore patrol basically say, we're done. I mean, we don't go on land. They turn it over to the police chief who turns, it brings in this detective. Which is a new designation. Right. And they didn't, and the detectives got paid by case basically. Mm. And they didn't make a lot of money. And a lot of the detectives were corrupt. And you could hire them because they had to take extra work as security because they didn't make enough money to live. Right. So basically, if you got convicted of a crime, you could go hire the detective that was searching your crime and he could lose a piece of evidence. It was like a real problem. This was like a real honest detective who was trying to prove 
that this was the wave of the future. And they basically, in the most basic way, they found the dinghy and they walked around looking for people. Had any, has any, you seen anybody who's come ashore? And a bunch of people had seen him come ashore. And they fought, and the, where'd he go? And they followed the trail and they followed him onto the Staten Island Ferry where they found the guy who helped him count the money. They got it to what is now South Ferry where the ferry landed. He spoke to the guy with the, the kiosk you know, who ran like a little newsstand. He'd bought coffee and cake from that guy. Then there was a group of kids hanging around the dock. They remembered him and he hired one of them to carry his bag. Back to his apartment. But he didn't go back to his apartment. He just stopped at the corner of Greenwich and Broadway, I think, in the middle of the street, which was a crowded street. And then they lost the trail. And that would have been the end of it. Then he would have gotten away. But they had this great piece of luck, which is they went back to the station house and they have nowhere else to look. I mean, the trail ended. And a guy showed up who was basically like a superintendent of this building and said, I think I know who did this because it was all over the newspapers. And he said, this guy was supposed to go away to sea for like a month. He was gone for two days and he came back with all this money. And that and that and they went into the apartment that this guy lived in and the apartment had been emptied out and they found a compass. I mean, they found a sea compass with an engraving on the back and the sea compass turned out to belong to the captain of the ship. And then they just went around and found people who had interacted with him because he interacted with everybody. And all these people ultimately were witnesses at the trial. They had actually, you know, by in in the city, on the Connecticut shore, into Rhode Island, had followed this guy's trail and ended up finding him in a way that seemed to me miraculous. But then all these array of people became witnesses right. at the trial. Well, what's amazing is like the courtroom rhetoric. So what you're calling miraculous, the prosecutor and the judge used as proof that the jury, God, wanted the jury to find this guy guilty. They said, look at all these things that had to happen for him to be caught. Holy. You know, so the whole time that he was running and running away and getting out of the city. And I mean, he ended up in Providence, Rhode Island, which was far away back then. So, Rich, talk about the man. So this guy was, um, he, you know, had a, you, they figured out who his family was, how he was raised. Talk about what he was like at a young age and what happened when he was pretty young. Well, he was from a big family with a lot of siblings. I forget the exact number, but something like 10 siblings. Yeah. His parents were farmers and his father was a farmer in Connecticut. And most of the siblings... They were that, Norwich? Yep, they were Norwich. And most of the siblings that we know about, which isn't very many, but there was one real bad one who was in prison before him and was sentenced to be executed too. He mm. killed This guy, his older brother had killed a, an old man in Norwich in his bed and stole his money, got caught and was sentenced to be executed. And there was an escape from the prison. Everybody escaped from the prison and he just was never found again. So, so Rich, when, when I read about what happened to this Albert Hicks young and he ended up in jail for, you know, a petty theft in really horrible, horrible circumstances, <clears throat> you know, this might seem far afield from the topic, but the thing that you can't help thinking about, this Albert Hicks was viewed as a, as a demon, as someone possessed— by a devil. When you read about his upbringing, did that did you start to think at all about this notion of nature nurture? Like, did it seem like this guy was just born evil incarnate, or did it seem like the circumstances 
threw him in a direction that was sort of inevitable. No, I mean, I think his story is like a good cautionary tale about the system and institutions and what they do to people. I mean, I don't think he was a demon. I think that he was he was a restless kid who maybe not a, maybe not a great kid, but maybe not necessarily a bad kid who got brutalized by the mm, system. Early. At a young, yeah. So what he did was he ran away from home when he was like 15 years old and he was trying to make money. He tried to get jobs. He could try to eat, try to eat. And he went to the train station and there was bags piled up uh, to be transferred from one train to another. And he stole a couple of those bags and brought them out to the woods and opened them up. And there was like a late pair of ladies underwear and some different stuff. And he traded the stuff for money just to get home. And this crime was investigated and they came to his house because people had recognized him because they knew his father. Yeah. And they went into his room, probably completely illegal to have done, you know. And they found this underwear and some other stuff, and they they sent him to prison for a year. Now, it was an adult prison. So he was like 15 years old, and he was brutalized in this prison, and he escaped. And when they brought him back, they, like, doubled the sentence, and he was – and he – they put him on, like, a kind of a road gang kind of thing, and he escaped again. And the last time, they put him in solitary confinement for – For a year, for a right? year, when he was, like, 17 years old. And he says later in his confession – that he went crazy and he became determined that the world was unfair and out to get him. And he'd get revenge. And he'd get revenge on the world if and when he ever got out of prison. And he spent the next 20 years of his life doing just that. So another part of the book is there was, right before he was executed, he he had a confessional. And it he... P.T. Barnum was involved. They made a cast of his head. There were, this was a huge story. He was hoping to get some money for his wife, um, who would obviously now be widowed. And this long story ensues about this man's life that was literally being a pirate on the seven seas, that he was, you know, in Tahiti. He was in Hawaii. He was, he was in San Francisco during the gold rush. He made and lost fortunes. What evidence of it uh, was there that this was even remotely true? Or was he just the most fantastical storyteller that anybody ever invented? Because it's a crazy story. Well, that's always been a question. How true is the confession? And to me, I sort of say in the book, you can't really know how true it is if it's not true, it's is indicative of him as a storyteller. As a storyteller. Right. And you know, but certain things in the confession were corroborated. So there had been outstanding crimes committed all over the world. Yeah. And when the confession was published, people came forward and they sort of were closed the case on these crimes. Like he answered the question of unsolved crimes in five or six different crimes. So those are true. Wow. You know, so all the detail, all the color and stuff, I don't know how much is true and how much he added. I mean, he was in two shipwrecks. He was the only survivor on one shipwreck in the in the in the Gulf of Mexico, you know. Who knows? But we do know that in a few cases, not just in the United States, but one in uh, South America, he confessed to a killing in um, Brazil. That was then they solved, solved that, that crime, murder. and in California and all these places. And uh, so I think there's a, probably a lot of truth, and you could never know for sure because he was telling the story at the end of his life. And. Uh, but there's never been 
Yours is the first book written about just him. There's never been a film or... No, and not only that. So I said Herbert Asbury was the main thing. And then Luke Sant spent like a paragraph or a page on him just because it was such a big story at the time. Weirdly, there was an episode of The Twilight Zone about a wax museum that is being shut down and the wax figures come to life and kill the people who are trying to shut the museum. And I don't remember who the third figure is, but one is Jack the Ripper and one is Albert Hicks. Really? So in the 60s, they whoever wrote that show thought Albert Hicks was well known enough. Then. Right. To huh. make him one of the characters. And there was a Meyer Berger story. Remember Meyer Berger wrote all the stories yeah. about New York in the New Yorker in the 30s about the hangman at the tombs prison. Hmm. And he I think it was the 30s. And he had said his most famous hanging or maybe it was his predecessor's most famous hanging, was of the pirate Albert Hicks. And that's all they identified him as. So the New Yorker at that point thought he didn't need any more identification than that. Now, part of the thing is that he committed these crimes, and was the trial happened the summer before the Civil War. And as we know from Donald Trump, you can change stories on things, and people <laughs> tend to forget. And it was a case of that, which is much bigger, more important news yeah, than washed through the newspapers. And this suddenly, everything that happened before the Civil War became a different era, like yeah. sealed in glass. It was antebellum, you know. And um, but weirdly, all those stories, like the starting with Asbury, which seems to be the source for everything else, tells the story in a certain way that I always knew it, which was that Albert Hicks was Shanghai. Now, that was a term they used for when a ship would come ashore in New York. It would be short crew because life was so bad in those ships. As soon as they touched uh, port, people would take off and they need more crew. And, and they, they would take anybody. They would go into dives on Cherry Street, on Water Street, whatever. And they would slip a Mickey in somebody who's already pretty drunk's drink, a Mickey being uh, like opium basically. Yeah. Then the person would go to sleep. They'd go into their room and they would whack him over the head, put him in, sometimes kill him, mostly just put him into deep unconsciousness. These were in these cheap hotels uh, hmm. that were on often built on piers over the river. And some of these rooms had uh, trap doors right to the river and they'd open the trap door. There'd be a boat. They drop the person in the boat and they bring him out to the ship. The person would wake up a day later. They're on a ship and they're told work or swim. And it was called the Shanghai because on the worst case, you wind up on a ship heading for China and you're gone for a year and every, no one knows what happened to you, you know? So, and that's another reason, by the way, why it was hard to solve a lot of these crimes because nobody knew if the body was gone, maybe the person just been kidnapped, you know? And there was a lot, it was a serious problem in New York that the police wrote about all the people that were Shanghai. So when the story was originally told, it was that Albert Hicks was Shanghai. Mm. And it was a story that they picked the exact wrong person to Shanghai. They picked this really scary gangster pirate. And he woke up on the ship and he was told workers swim. And he killed everybody on the ship. So, Rich, one of the things reading reading this book or when I think about, um, you know, reading about uh, 1920s New York or 1860s New York. So you write in the book news of Hicks's confession that outlandish, outlandish rambling uh, life of murder and piracy on the seven seas quickly spreads. If he had been famous before, he was now even more a dark star. He was the soul of America, courageous yet grotesque. The nation had begun with certain ideals, but reality was different. 
on our money, in our public places. We have images of the founding fathers, but there's another set of founders, underworld kingpins, gang lords who slept late, never went to an office, never answered to a boss. How much of day-to-day life in New York in those days was this underworld? Were there people living in parts of, you know, what was small then, where this wasn't at all part of their life, or was this inescapable in everyday life? No, I think it was very escapable. If you had money and you lived uh, uptown or a little bit outside these slums, you never knew about it and you didn't really care. This was downtown. But if you were not wealthy, right? this was part of your life. Well, and you... people, people, so people got out. You know, it was, you, mm-hmm. it was something you had to escape. Yeah. These neighborhoods, and it was the, 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 um, Five Points is the most, I mean, the Five Points is the most famous one, but the fourth ward, which was a waterfront ward where, where Hicks really operated, was, it was, these guys who kidnapped people were called crimps, and their hotels were called crimps, and it was a lot of saloons, a lot of uh, bordel, I mean, it was like Deadwood, South Dakota, and yeah. parts of it down there, and um, Hicks married a woman later on, and her family was immigrants from Ireland, and they ended up in one of those neighborhoods as soon as they could. They, they went to Albany, they right? They went to Albany. And that's yeah. what a lot of people did. They got in and they got out. And then finally, they just had to condemn the entire neighborhood and bulldoze it because it became such a problem. But I think for a normal person, and this is true of everything everywhere, I mean, for a normal person living their life, they wouldn't ne- necessarily know about it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I traveled from an earlier book I wrote called The Fish That Ate the Whale. I spent like two months traveling around Honduras which was then the most dangerous country in the world and still is probably more dangerous now. And mostly it's just people going about their business, living their lives, you know, figuring out how to survive. Right. And when you read about this place riddled with crime, like New York was then, and it was in the midst of a crime, the greatest crime wave in its history, you just picture this war zone, but it's really, for most of the people, it's not, it's just, they're just living their lives. And that's how I think it was. Albert Hicks was in the center of this world, and he was famous in this world because in a world of sort of scary people, he was the scariest. Scariest. Yeah. So, Rich, talking about uh, the book you wrote about Honduras, so you've written books on Sweet and Low, mm-hmm. you know, the product, right. um, Israel, which I'd love to get back to, the Chicago Bears, the Rolling Stones. How do you... How do you decide on these topics? Because, um, it, it, you know, it's a pretty wide range of topics that are become riveting, you know, as a reader to me, riveting. But how do you decide? What, you're obviously curious, but how do you pick which one you're really going to sit down and spend two months, a year or 20 years writing about? Well, as a rule, and I think it's true with all my books, I just don't want it to be anything I'm just interested in now. Yeah, I want it to be something I've been interested in for years, and have been pursuing. Without... Do you keep notes on this stuff? Yeah, I mean, with Hicks, I was always looking for stuff, not because I thought I was going to write a book, just because I was fascinated by him. Mm-hmm. And these are in just... your house in Maine. I I was at Rich's house in Maine last summer for his birthday. What was that uh, photograph you had or map that you had on the wall? That because that's the first time I heard right. about the book. Well, one of the. Uh... Somebody, after he was hung, put out a map of the city with, he was hung on Friday, July 13th, 1860. Some people think that's where Friday the 13th got its bad name was from that hanging. And um, 
he was hung on Bedlos Island. Now Liberty where, Island. Now where the Statue of Liberty is, a lot of pirates were hung there. It was a traditional place, and supposedly Captain Kidd buried some of his treasure there. It was always associated with pirates, which is funny that the Statue of Liberty is there, and people have a completely different association mm-hmm. with the place. And, I mean, I always look at it, and I see Albert Hicks hanging. So that was a picture, and a, a very small, you could see the gallows and presumably him hanging, but it's so yeah. far away. That's what the picture was. So it's stuff, and all those things you mentioned, the bears. Uh, my last book was about, before this, was about the cubs. You know, had won a World Series since 1908. So they're all things. I used to say, if I was interested in it when I was 15, you know. And you're from Chicago originally. I'm from Chicago, yeah. So, but I think it's just things that I'm I'm genuinely, truly interested in. And then at some point, I think I'd like to go more into depth and write about it. And I think it's good material. You know, my favorite book as a kid, and even one of my favorite books as an adult, is Treasure Island, mm. Robert Louis Stevenson book. And I think he's just like the greatest writer in English that ever lived, pretty much. I mean, he's right up there for me. And um, you know, the, I never read that book. Oh, it's so. And there's a description of just walking along the the wharves in London, and just his description of the wharves and the taverns. And so that was always kind of magical for me. And I thought this was a chance to kind of write a pirate story for grown-ups, and that would make you see New York in a completely different way and make you realize that these cities weren't always like they were now. And underneath them Mm. is this other city, which has sort of been buried over but is still present in all the ways people talk, dress, act. And the the biggest, you know, example of that is Liberty Island, where underneath it is Bedlos Island, and there's Albert Hicks hanging. Well, you know, I, I was thinking about that, and I think it's one of the books that you cite in your bibliography. I remember when I was reading City of Dreams, uh-huh. which is, a for our listeners, a wonderful book about New York City as a place for immigrants and what that all looked like then. And you're reminded that New York was founded, as opposed to some of the other colonies, by the Dutch, who were mercenary. Right. You know, that its original was not focused on farming or liberty. It was it was focused on trade. Right. You know, which made a lot of this stuff about pirating seem logical. Yeah. And, the you know, some of the first great residents of the city, like Captain Kidd, were pirates who were also privateers. They were businessmen. You know, the line was very thin between pirate and just businessman. If they maybe if, now, too. Right. They were attacking. <laughs> the sh- I mean, if you were uh, attacking a Spanish ship, you weren't a pirate. If you were British, you were a privateer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, um, you know, and a lot of the people that we sort of, you could go on either side of the line. So, um, and that's always been interesting to me. So, like, I had a whole section of the fish that ate the whale, which I then caught and ran in the Paris Review as a standalone story about John Lafitte, who's like the most famous, other very fam- famous pirate in America who. Again, you're told these stories about John Lafitte, who's this famous, famous pirate. What he was, what he was really doing was, he was a slave trader. Mm. Okay, and he was a gangster. Right. We call him a pirate because he was on the water, but he was basically operating the same way that John Gotti operated. He was selling something that was illegal to sell that people wanted. You know. So, so Rich, how many stories do you have in your notebooks that are yet to be? Written? Do you, are, are there five or ten or fifty or? I wrote. I mean, I write down a lot of ideas of things that I think would be really great stories. I don't really know if they're going to be if books. they're books or just magazine stories, and it's it's hard to sell them 
because people want things to be connected to the news, you know. Yeah. And the good stories aren't connected to the news, and they well, don't. they are, it, they can but be. more remotely. Right. They, they're they're connected to the news in a deep way about human character and stuff. But I mean, there there's always like the hot take, you know, like how can you com- right now? It's how can you compare everything to Donald Trump? Yeah. And you can. I can compare everything to Donald Trump if I want to. Yeah, I mean, including this book. You can, Yes, absolutely. I could sell it as a, do- a book really about Donald Trump. Happy to do that. Let's do that, Rich. <laughs> so, so on that um, topic, one of your books that you wrote, what year did you write the book on Israel? Uh, probably around 2004, 2005. Right. So the... No, wait. No, a little later. More like 2010. Oh, okay. So... I can tell you when it was, which is was right when Israel withdrew their settlements from Gaza because I was there when they were doing that. So that was, I was there for that. So it was after that. And um, it was, you know, about a year after that. Because it made me think about talking about your books being President News. You had a very distinct purpose writing that book Uh um, about laying out the issues around Israel in a point-counterpoint kind of way. How applicable do you think if you, as you think about that book, would that be today, given that Israel is, you know, immediately right now with what happened last week in the news? How Completely, because it's not about the news, though I was there for it's the It's about Gaza. the history. It's about the roots. It's about the history and understanding. Is it still in print? Yeah. Hmm. And, um, you know, it's about the deep, deep history, which is, you know, I saw this big historical arc yeah. between ancient Israel, which was destroyed, and modern Israel. And basically, when it, my big idea was that when ancient Israel was destroyed, the whole idea of violence was completely discredited because there was a party called in Israel in Jerusalem called, when they were being sieged by the Romans called the Zealots, which is where the word zealot, zealot comes, comes from. from. And they had an argument with what they called the peace party, people who didn't want to fight, people who did want to fight. The Zealots won. The result was 90% of the Jewish people living there were killed. It was more higher percentage than the Holocaust, you know, which people don't know. And it was a miracle that Judaism survived. But to be survived, it had to be reinvented completely right at the same time that Christianity was coming into being. That's why Christianity and Judaism are so similar. Similar. Because not only they have the They're same the same people. Coming out of the same issues, which is yeah. how do you survive when Rome is all powerful? Mm-hmm. You know, and you have to what they did was they found value in all the attributes of weakness, mm-hmm. basically. I'm and, gonna go back and read yeah. that book. And then you and then you and then basically I think, and then that was after the disaster when 90% of the people died. Then after the Holocaust, what the descendants of the Peace Party, which is all the Judaism we grew up with, they were discredited mm-hmm. in a way. And the idea of sort of turning the other cheek, I guess, that became discredited and the idea of resistance came back. So I, that's, and that's the big sweep of it. I'm going to go, what's the title of that book, Rich? Israel is real. Israel is real. Israel is real. Yeah, I'm going to go back and read that book and and we'll we'll put that on our website. So which book was the most fun to do the research on? Um, They're all really fun in their own ways. I mean, Honduras doesn't sound like it was fun. No, it wasn't fun, but it was fascinating. Yeah. And what was fun? 85 Bears. Mm. Because I mean, I, I grew up in Chicago where uh, I was really into sports. I played sports. I watched sports. No team ever won in my entire lifetime. The Cubs hadn't won since 1908. The Bears had won in 1963, five years before I was born. 
So when the 85 Bears, not only did they win, they were the team that had the Super Bowl shuffle. They were hugely colorful. They had a quarterback named Jim McMahon who was, you know, he was just like a real character, which we never had in Chicago. And my father was from Brooklyn. His favorite book when I when I was a kid, I remember, was uh, Boys of Summer, which is a Roger Kahn book mm-hmm. about the Brooklyn Dodgers. And I realized that uh, that was written about 25 years after the Dodgers won the World Series. And I wrote Monsters about the 85 Bears, Bears about 25 years after the Bears won the Super Bowl. And I got to go back and meet all these guys. And it's funny because one of the things Roger Kahn did that I thought was great is he brought a, two baseball mitts and a ball. And he'd get each guy to go outside and play catch with them. And I, I brought a football along when I met Jim McMahon, who'd been a quarterback from the Bears, and asked if he wanted to play catch. And he said, play catch? I can't even throw my keys. <laughs> and then you realize football is different than baseball. <laughs> you know, Rich, whenever I listen to you, or and I've read any number of your books, it, I always get this image of, you know how, like, you see the, the um, commercials of... Uh, a little kid with a grown-up's voice. Uh-huh. Like you have the, you have such youthful exuberance on your topics that really comes across when you read your books. Like I, I don't really care about sports, right. but I care about them when I read your books because you make it a different kind of a story that maybe is not necessarily literally about football right. or baseball. Well, to me, what's great about it's writing— It's like a little kid, though. Yeah, well, I'm like a little kid. <laughs> but that's why I said if I was interested in it when I was 15. I mean, to me, what's great about sports is all the stuff that people normally hide is yeah. out in public. So it's about human nature. Yeah, of You course. know, how do people react in different stressful situations, you know? Albert Hicks panicked. I mean, I'm not—you know, so— and uh, you get lessons from it all the time. One of the great things about Jim McMahon and the Bears was when something bad happened to him on the football field, he immediately forgot about it and did the same thing again. And the next time it would work. Wow. And it's a good lesson, you know. In for general. Life. Yeah, which is you can't dwell on your failures. You got to just keep forging ahead, you know. And that's the kind of thing you see on display out in public that everyone's living in their life, but they're all in their houses. And in a sporting event, they're out in public. Yeah. So, Rich, uh, the last question I'll ask you is, since you're a big reader, what's the book that changed your life? Um, well, there's been so many books that have changed my life. But recently, I for the first time, I just read that Richard Rhodes book about the nuclear bomb. Oh, The Making of the Atomic yeah, Bomb. That com- it won the Pulitzer. Oh, it was such a great book. The, did it win the Pulitzer yeah, or the I Nobel? Yeah, I think so. If it didn't, No, I the mean, Pulitzer. The Pulitzer. It completely changed the way I've seen History, yeah. the world, America. He was a fa- he lived in Madison, where R.J. Joyas is. Yeah, he was a fascinate. He is a fascinating guy. He lives on the West Coast now. Yeah, I went and read some some about his life and crazy, crazy background. Yeah, crazy life. His story alone would be an interesting yeah. story. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, we could we could go on on all these topics. Your books have been described as a genre unto themselves pungent, breezy, vividly written, psychodramas written in a masterly and elegant fashion. So, Rich Cohen, I'm delighted you could join us on Just the Right Book to discuss your latest book, The Last Pirate. And thank you for coming in early in the morning into New York to record this. Thank you. My pleasure. I loved it. (laughs) I've been talking to Rich Cohen, the author of The Last Pirate of New York, A Ghost Ship, A Killer, and The Birth of a Gangster Nation. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. 
Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.